back to Optimism Vaccine. I'm Steve, and I think my voice sounds a little bit better. Yeah? Myros, what do you think? Uh, yeah, you, you sound healthy as a horse. Thanks. I feel, I don't know, what's, what's a lesser horse? Like a mule or a, like a, a donkey? A Shetland pony? A Shetland pony, yeah. I'm not 100%, but I'm better, so I'm feeling pretty Shetland. Jack, what kind of horse are you feeling like? <laughs> I was going to say, you have a voice smooth as national velvet, Steve. Oh, thank you so much. That's the nicest thing you've ever said. That's it. You're like yeah. one of those those big Budweiser horses, Jack. You're always fucking ready, man. Oh yeah, that's that's definitely me. Clyde's Just drinking piss and Clyde's running around in the yeah. snow. Yeah. Uh well <laughs> we're not talking about Emmanuel in America. This is not another horse cast, don't worry. Uh we're actually we tried to do something topical because there's a couple things you can always count on with this podcast. One if we talk about a movie and I say, why the fuck isn't there a home release of this or a HD release of this? Inevitably, some big label will announce it within a week, usually. Uh, the second thing that you can count on is if we try to plan something to be timely, topical, what have you, uh, nine times out of ten, it's going to blow up in our faces. And the explosion has occurred, and yet we will soldier on. And that explosion is, we said to ourselves, hey, Arrow is putting out an HD Coffin Joe box set. Coffin Joe, of course, is uh, Jose Mojica Marins. I'm probably saying that completely wrong. I'll just say it like a real white guy. Joe's Majica Marins. And uh, it's his, his character, Coffin Joe, uh, Brazilian horror series, uh, kind of an icon, uh, somewhere between you know, reoccurring film character, uh, comic book character, and then like TV show host. He's like Freddy Krueger Elvira. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really nothing like him, honestly. And so we, we were really excited to do this because uh, I think it was Synapse put out a box set <clears throat> a while back. And uh, the movies they had, uh, this was a DVD box set. And a few of the films are in respectable shape, but a lot of these have been kicked around and beaten up. We were talking kind of off air and just kind of talking about how maybe Brazil doesn't have the best uh, film preservation from this era, <laughs> which is understandable considering that even the American studio system can't seem to preserve things properly half the time. But anyways, we're all hyped up. There's this new Arrow uh, box set coming out with you know new 4k scans restorations of all these great films said hey we're gonna do three weeks of coffin joe we're gonna go through this whole damn thing it's gonna be great and then wouldn't you know just a few days ago arrow puts out a statement they go hey coffin joe is getting kicked back to january also all of our shit is getting kicked back a few months because we're having issues printing blu-rays so uh yeah here we are talking about movies that aren't restored but it doesn't fucking matter because at least with the first three of these movies, uh, rough shape as parts of them are in, it almost adds to the atmosphere, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great sure. late night TV element to these, I think. that works pretty well for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, uh, I think it was Golden Ninja. They put out that, uh, it was like a beat up library 16 millimeter print of White Zombie and everything's sort of like, soft and faded and scratched up and 
it, I don't know, with, with certain horror movies from certain eras, it, it really does add a, add a little bit of something <laughs> to it. And I think in this case, it, it still hits. And anyways, uh, Coffin Joe series is very, very interesting because uh, Jose Mojica Marins, he, he grew up in Brazil and his dad actually owned a movie theater and he grew up living in the back of this movie theater and just watching films. So he was more or less raised on like Charlie Chaplin from the time he was three years old. And at some point he got an eight millimeter camera, just started shooting stuff. And he self-financed, self-produced, wrote, directed, starred in movies for God, uh, over 50 years, which is pretty impressive. No formal training whatsoever. The, the first movie that he made, um, he was able to self-finance and then it didn't make a lick of money from that. And by the time he got to his big breakthrough, which was 1964's At Midnight, I'll Take Your Soul, which is the, the debut film of Coffin Joe. He actually, his wife really appreciated this, I'm sure. He sold his house, he sold his car, he sold everything that he owned and he made his wife live with her parents. And he made Coffin Joe. Um, <laughs> and he couldn't find someone to play Coffin Joe because people saw this character and they read the script and they were like, I don't know if this is good for my career. So he said, fuck it, I'm going to be Coffin Joe. And he dressed up like uh, a guy that he had seen on a, a packet of cigarettes, <laughs> I, which I'm assuming was supposed to be some sort of like, uh, I don't know. Coffin like, Joe Camel? Yeah, I, <laughs> Coffin Joe Camel, some sort of dandy man in a, in a top hat. And then at the time, he was growing out specifically his thumbnail for reasons that I am completely unclear on. But he's just said in interviews like, yeah, you know, those are my real fingernails in, in that movie because I was growing out my thumbnail at the time. I don't know who wakes up one day and they're like, man, I really wish I had a six inch long, just disgusting crusty thick thumbnail i think i'm gonna stop clipping those uh or i mean i i'm shocked because i don't know about you but i i'm an anxious person i just bite my nails constantly so good on him for not uh doing that either but he's got gross uh fingernails he's got this you know black cloak and top hat he's got this beard that he had just started growing out anyways and he's got a uh very ferocious and uh ominous unibrow so from that, he creates this Coffin Joe character. And one thing I love about uh, Jose Marins is he understands that more so than anything you could ever write or any special effects you can use, if you're just a guy who looks like an absolute fucking creep, you can get more mileage out of that than anything else. And that is the essence of Coffin Joe, because you take one look at the guy and you're like, God damn, there's something special here. I feel we all know, you know like everyone's kind of spent time in the vicinity of their own personal Coffin Joe. Just <laughs> some dude who's just really yeah, just unpleasant energy and no one likes mm -hmm. them. But yeah, he, he runs a little bit further. He's he's a he's a pretty interesting character because he is basically uh, a self, like self-made man. He's a grave digger by profession. He's just supposed to be a regular guy, I think, because despite his like weird kind of like accoutrements, he's he he does have this strange thing where does he zoom in on his eyes and they go bloodshot in this like you know time lapse thing that's um 
kind of interesting, but it, there's no real inference of a particular supernatural element. I mean, he's more almost of a mad scientist in the in the earlier film, certainly. But he, he brushes up against the supernatural, but rejects it all because he he believes mm -hmm. solely in in materialist concerns. He is a, a man of 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 like flesh and blood, and he believes the only thing that's real is immortality of blood by producing an offspring, a male heir. And that's that's all he wants to do. He doesn't care about religion and its edicts. He doesn't care about society and etiquette. All he wants to do is to have a son. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really difficult to do when you're also just a creepy, kind of lecherous freak. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out women aren't particularly interested in you when you look like Coffin Joe. I don't know. It uh, seems but, like but yeah, he, I, he, he does all right. Yeah, he um, does but film okay. two, he struggles in film one. Shall well, we? he's got a doting <laughs> wife, a beautiful doting wife. It's just she happens to be uh, infertile. That's that's yeah, true. He does. He you know what we do with those. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I I'm kind of interested in just like the coffin Joe philosophy here, and it's it's so funny. Like reading the film versus reading how Marins talks about the coffin Joe character in, in interviews because uh, there's this really big divide between how he sees the character and how I feel like the character is presented on, on screen. And it's, it's really interesting to me. So the way he's presented, it's, it's almost this like Nietzschean character where he it believes that, the, yeah, there's, there's no real spirituality and, and there's no supernatural elements. And he thinks that, People who believe in that shit are basically a bunch of fucking idiot rubes, uh, which sure. Yeah, I can get on board with that, buddy. And from there, you know, he he sort of he mocks Catholicism pretty frequently, uh, which dominant religion here in Brazil. And that was that was pretty taboo at the time as well. So you've got this setup where, like you said, Jack, the only thing that he believes in is, you know, uh, power in life and and what you can get out of your brief time on earth and the only immortality that exists is not into the beyond in some spiritual realm it's your ability to carry on your bloodline so that in the mind of coffin joe he's going to pass on his philosophy uh by <laughs> finding a worthy woman to bear his son and then that son will take the the lessons and the philosophy of coffin joe and and carry it forward now the way that Marin sees coffin joe is he sees coffin joe as a guy who is rejected by society and you know because he's an ugly weird dude and because of that coffin joe uh, rejects the people around him. He rejects their spirituality and wants, again, in the words of Marin, wants to make the, the world more accessible for people who aren't, you know, beautiful or successful or, or wealthy and whatnot. Um, sure. Yeah. But then also it's like, I, I don't know if that jives with his whole, and then I'm going to choke out every single man and woman who crosses my path. Uh, kind of actions that that coffin joe takes but it, it is interesting to see because i think so much of horror was grounded in the supernatural and continues to be grounded in the supernatural whereas coffin joe as a character is the exact opposite of that in every way shape and form 
And I think that's what makes these films so compelling now is all of the spooky shit is coming from his victims and it's not coming from him, uh, which is, it's fucking cool. I love it. Well, yeah, he doesn't believe in the spooky shit. Uh, but what I, I think we're on the precipice of, of a dangerous time for Coffin Joe. Now that these films are being restored, it seems like just a matter of time before he becomes some sort of alt-right icon. <laughs> yeah right it, it really does it's like his whole philosophy is like might is right uh <laughs> yeah he would if he existed today uh, as a character he would be like on youtube eating like raw livers or something yeah i think so he'd be somewhere between uh liver king and and like uh i don't know like chicago's sven tv host except <laughs> uh talking about like white slavery <laughs> like that's the only thing i could think of <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that that society rejected him because i feel like honestly the people around coffin joe put up with this shit a lot yeah. more than i might expect of a rural brazilian uh -huh. village i feel like this dude could have been lynched about eight times halfway through the movie but they just kind of back off yeah especially but, in the yeah, first movie yeah. he's he's definitely like he seems like the dominant social force in the village to some extent He's just, Which is really mm -hmm. odd, because, yeah, he's not, like, the mayor or anything. He's just the grave dude. He's, like, the mortician, but he's, like, he rules over these people. They're all terrified of him, and he's just, like, he just slaps a couple of people around the bar. He's just unruly. Yeah, well, and that's a big part of his character, too. It's not just that Coffin Joe has this power and this philosophy and this, this confidence, uh, but, again, unlike other horror icons, it's not like he sequesters himself to some dark castle and only pops his head out every once in a while uh like some you know ghoulish recluse he's a man about town he's at the bar every night he's playing <laughs> poker he's having wine he's grabbing butts and boobs he's all over the place and yeah i mean constantly constantly people are just like hey can you back off maybe don't do that gross terrible thing you just did <laughs> and then his <laughs> response is like no, I'm going to beat your ass. It's like, oh, he canes a guy. He whips another guy. Um, he is playing poker with someone who's just like, hey, man, I, I can't play anymore. I, you just took all my money. I have nothing for my family. And his response is to break a glass bottle and cut the guy's finger <laughs> off. And all of this, too, it's, it's more of an extension of his philosophy, right? Because he believes that there is absolutely nothing beyond the physical form and and just life as you live it on earth so he every time he assaults someone it's almost like he's he's trying to leave some sort of scar so that they have to carry it with them for the rest of their natural life which makes the violence all that more fucked up you know yeah yeah i think this first film is like much more tangible to me as like fulfilling a certain expectation of of a sort of third world horror in the 60s like it's super indebted to uh the universal stuff obviously uh stylistically and so yeah i i think it's the sort of stuff you'll see a lot where these uh independent productions will mirror uh decades earlier hollywood stuff and also have like a clear moralist bent uh you know it's, it's similar to what you see in like indonesian horror stuff like that but um yeah this movie feels very much of that ilk it, it goes the fact that it became a franchise and really uh turned into something completely separate is is what is interesting like this film on its own 
is something that you would expect. You know, this is kind of what I thought I was getting into with Coffin Joe. Like, ah, here we are. This is sort of third world horror. Um, and it is wildly entertaining, but it's also like not surprising really, I guess. And yeah, I, I think where this thing differentiates itself is, is as we move forward. But, uh, this one is, is very much like this guy who is really spitting in the face of the social order and it refuses to, uh, believe any religious doctrine or, or accepted, uh, truth beyond death within Brazilian society, uh, gets his, you know, he'll, he'll get his in the end <laughs> and he does, but you know. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's cause at midnight I'll take your soul. It's kind of listed as in a lot of cases, the first Brazilian horror film. Mm -hmm. So there's, it's not coming from a tradition, uh, domestically. Right. So yeah. And I think there, there's definitely, there's, there's, uh, an ode to universal horror there's this I, I and i agree i mean it's not like an unpredictable film in terms of the overall arc of coffin joe as you clearly like this dude's going to get his you know all those people talking about bad things that happen and karma and you know ghostly processions it's like you have a feeling that's probably going to weigh in by the end and, and no surprise it does but what's really is enjoyable about the films is there's this great sense of theatricality about it i mean it's almost like coffin joe is almost like like little freak Vincent Price, like he's got that kind of like sneering to the camera kind of comp like very composed performances. I think Marines he he's very good in the role, but there there is certainly this kind of like pantomime almost grandiosity to it that's then held in by the fact the first two films we we're talking about, uh, this one and the next, are have these incredible opening credits that are like played over screams and they have like the 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 credits the, the font is like this cartoonish scrawl that like just explodes on the screen it's like the credits are being hurled at the audience over the sound of like screaming and horror images underneath presage what you're gonna see in the movie and other just ghastly things and then you know after that and this the film opens with coffin joe giving a, a grand sermon about you know what is life? Life is blood. Blood is the only thing. And, you know, there's nothing else to existence. And then we get these incredible punchy opening credits. And then we get just another character talking to camera, a, a gypsy woman uh, in the village who's a fortune teller, basically telling us about how, you know, you need to leave now because this movie's so scary, uh, you know. And then at a certain point, she goes, mm -hmm. it's too late. You're Now you have to watch the movie and it's so scary. Uh, and it's it it works like it's is this great kind of sense of you being ushered into something. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of like you, you know yeah has that kind of like sense of like a theatrical production that we're all kind of cozy in our place to witness this unfold. So that even though when it's not mm. exactly unpredictable, the staging is always very unique and very um kind of like very uh, what we say like localized and specific. Uh huh. And and I think it's it's important too that. You know these these movies open in almost like a William Castle esque mm -hmm. way sure, to the point yes. where it, we're just like breaking down the fourth wall and and some witch lady is just like oh boy you're gonna get real spooked out here you better stop watching it's getting <laughs> spooky and then she's got like a little like cackling skull with her and and the screaming and the ghosts and all this shit it's very like um, haunted house esque and so yeah you get a little bit of the William Castle and um, 
Obviously, I, I think Rob, we could say Rob Zombie's a big fan of Coffin Joe. Yeah, I don't know for sure. For sure. I think but one of the funniest things is to the, say. <laughs> the skull she holds, the, the, the fortune teller woman, like her skull, I think is great because it's like the special effects in this movie are really, they're pretty solid and, and there's some pretty mm -hmm. grisly violence unleashed here well, for the early 60s. And that's certainly. the best part, right? Sure. Because you get all this kitsch and, and again, from this specific era, I'm, I'm very like, attuned to the, the William Castle mode, right? And so I, I knew this was a little bit darker, but going into it, I assumed it'd be a little more campy in, in yeah, that but, way. But, this thing, like, but her then it gives way to like extreme sadism, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, her skull is like specifically like the worst prop in the whole movie. Like it's this oh, yeah. goofy fake skull. It's got like and ear it holes, giant ear holes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it settles, it settles you in. You're like, oh, here we go. This is going to be fun. And then yeah, by the end of it, it's a dude with huge gnarly fingernails gouging someone's eyes out and blood everywhere. And you're like, what? The? And like after the, the like fairly, like they don't show anything, but like uh, the pretty obvious rape scene that, you know, mm -hmm. could never have been envisioned in Hollywood of this era, really, like not within the mainstream thing, you know, they, they cut over the main act, but like it's a very, very direct inference like the movie gets real gnarly real quick yeah and it's it's interesting to me too because this is like we are right on the verge of uh, you know american and italian and and uh, british filmmakers started to do some really like transgressive shit and ratcheting up uh the, you know the sexploitation the exploitation the violence all of that you know, we're probably just a couple years away from that really taking off. And here it's 1964 and it feels like, I don't, I don't know, man, this is like watching the Beatles play a club in Liverpool, you know, like <laughs> it's like you're seeing something before the rest of the world catches on to it. And because, you know, he, he was a, a big hit in Brazil, obviously, but I don't know if, these movies really got a lot of play during this era outside of his home country. So it's almost like you're, you're watching someone who you think would be this massive cultural influence, but he almost exists in a vacuum. And that extends all the way to his filmmaking style. Like not only was he not trained as a filmmaker, you know, he was saying he worked with the same cinematographer on like 15 straight movies just because he he didn't know how to talk to other cinematographers because he, he never storyboarded anything and he didn't even know like what a close up meant or like medium shot, like none of this, all the blocking, none of it staging. He would just be like, okay, this is how things are. Just do it like that. And so what he ends up doing is kind of working from his own cinematic language. And so you have this formally interesting thing. You have a film that is transgressive and really pushing the boundaries uh, with sex and violence, and then even from a storytelling standpoint, what is what is the script for this night? I'll possess your corpse, or at midnight I'll take your soul. What do those scripts even look like? I can't even imagine because it's not like there's extensive dialogue between characters here. Half the time it's just fucking coffin Joe meandering around, and it's like a, a philosophical screed. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. in a way that it doesn't feel super preachy or like just overwrought. It just it, it's it's this perfect combination of ingredients that under no circumstances should work together. 
And uh, it's it's like it's fucking electric, man. Like there's there's not other cinema from this era that's like yeah, this. it's yeah, really there's fun. a big feeling. Okay, there's a big feeling. It's like because I'm looking like Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast was '63, mm-hmm. which was you mm-hmm. know kind of on, on that era. So yeah, but but like Lewis was also a complete outsider in American cinema at this point. He was not, you know, he was not making big money and and kind of like getting brought into the inner sanctums of anything he was just doing his own shit on the 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 borderlines of legality uh so yeah i i think probably developing you know and i i'm not sure if a film like blood feast ever made it to brazil either i'm not sure they got any kind of international distribution at the time so mm-hmm. yeah it is this kind of interesting thing i mean it was a, the the lure of of grand guignol and and of of pushing those envelopes i think every every country had someone who did it because it's just natural to do um, yeah. And it's just a question of, of at what pace and to what degree it would happen. And so it's just really interesting that Brazil's first horror film is such an interesting, it does seem like it's really interesting a mixture of, as you say, like that kind of very, very classical horror mode, almost like adapted directly from the stage um, and the, the transgressive new wave that was just about fomenting in, in America at the same time yeah. and, in, and in Europe. It's, it's a really interesting kind of development almost like there was just something in the air at the, at the time that that pushed them to do it yeah it's like yeah. watching it now it has this sort of effect of being like this uh, sort of carnival ride through horror history in many ways it, it's just a, a pleasure frankly and and a lot of that comes down to this character himself just what a what a vibrant creation he is this fucking complete asshole just uh, wandering around being a, <laughs> a jerk and playing with this sort of again that that eye effect makes you like lean into like oh this is a jekyll and hyde story it's like but i don't know even when he's jekyll he's just a complete son of a bitch like <laughs> yeah, <he's, laughs> i know it's a hide and hide story yeah i was trying to trying to think of like an allegorical read because because at a certain point it feels like Coffin Joe is some kind of an embodiment of uh, an institutional abuse or something, but but he isn't because he's he's outside like he's not Catholic, mm-hmm. he's not the mayor, he's not a leader, he's like he's he's some kind of anti-hero kicking in the establishment. Except that you don't exactly root for him either because he's awful. I, so you know, I mean, there's a certain thrill I I reckon to watching him fucking walk around on holy friday eating the fucking chunk of oh meat. my god that is the best shit ever I, like it, you want to talk about something like this movie it's it's creepy it's it's gross but it's also it's fucking hilarious yeah. like it, right in the beginning of the movie he goes home and is he's like i need dinner uh and his wife <laughs> Brings him a plate and he's like, where is the meat? I need protein. Ah, again, this, he'd be a great, like right wing YouTuber. Um, <laughs> so, does this happen every Friday or is this new? I, yeah. So this is like, so it's yes. Cause it's, it's fucking Lent. Right. So, and I think it might actually be like good Friday. And she's like, bro, it's, it's Lent. You, there's no, there's no meat. And he's like, that's bullshit. I'm going out to get meat. <laughs> and then at some point it, he leaves and, and the movie just kind of continues on and it's it's just sort of left at that. And so you're thinking in your head like, oh, he's just he's just a fucking asshole because he even says like, if I have to eat the flesh of a human, I will eat them. Oh, I need meat. <laughs> and then so you think, OK, you're just telling me that he's a fucking dick. That's fine. But then later he's in the bar 
And then he tells someone else, he's like, tell my wife to get me my fucking lamb shank. <laughs> and then he gets his lamb shank and he just like is carrying around a whole ass lamb shank, just fucking biting into it like it's a turkey leg at the Renaissance Fair. And everyone there is just horrified because they're all devout Catholics. And he makes one of the it's devout Catholics. Goddamn incredible. Eat. <laughs> he's like, eat the fucking yeah. lamb. <laughs> Like, yeah, he, that's right. He forced it, and like there's there's a thrill I think to that for an you know audience of like this is disruptive anti you know kind of punk almost energy to it. But then you know he quickly within the same thing like he's he's uh, torturing other people, kidnaps a woman, rapes her, impregnates her, and she commits suicide. I mean it's it's certainly like he's not. He's not a cool dude. He's he's awful. It's his very yeah. peculiar thing, and he's very much an outsider posited as well. So like he's a disruptive influence to the outside or to, to the establishment, but also not exactly, you know, uh what we say constructive in any way, shape, or form. In fact, no. to the point where really by by the end of both of the first two films, his order is re order reestablishes over top of him kind of, you know, that the hammer that sticks out is nailed down and that that sticking out object is very much coffin joe in his top hat um mm -hmm. it's, it's such an odd kind of thing because it because it, you know you feel like his his overtures to religion particularly in the second film we we talk more about but like by, by the end of that movie it has almost that like uh he he converts at the end he, he almost dies a christian but it has that kind of weird energy of like the like black sabbath Christian music, which almost feels like is like, is this a real profession of something, or is this just because you know people will be mad at you and you're just trying to diffuse things? But um, mm -hmm. it, you know, but it's not exactly like a, it's almost like he's just needling at it, but then backing away enough. But maybe the needling is enough, not to say like you know you should be violent maniac, but you know like poke at things, disrupt things, be be a bit of a jerk sometimes, you know kind of like ask people questions think why do you need to do this why like why aren't you eating meat today does it really matter you know there, there is that mm -hmm. kind of energy to it but then it's it's all dressed into as you say there's this wonderfully theatrical kind of like absorbing tale and and really it's, it all comes into the fact there's just so much clever production design to this special and it's particularly kind of like these are not lavish productions by any means but you know there's so many like just grand strange touches like coffin joe's home is just full of hands it's like almost like a jean cocteau like beauty and the mm -hmm. beast like the living hands through the wall of the beast castle it's like there's just mannequin hands just sticking out like there's a candlestick holder and instead of a candle it's just a hand like an arm a mannequin things sticking like these are all over the place and these little details that don't necessarily make sense but just contribute this kind of strange esoteric almost like almost like caligari's uh like like expressionism yeah. mm -hmm. warps the world there's these details throughout coffin joe that warp our conception of of the world like it's not a normal brazilian home and you know it's not the a typical bar everything's oh, just totally. kind of curiously warped and it really makes it just that much more engaging and kind of like the whole thing becomes this really fantastic unified package yeah and and i think it you know we we mentioned earlier um you know uh, herschel gordon lewis and and blood feast is kind of a touch point for uh, an american analog that was that was pushing the boundaries on, on gore and just general good taste at the time. And the interesting thing about Blood Feast is you can watch that movie in, you know, or for a film in 1963. And then there's a clear line for the next 
25 years of other cheap films that have kind of followed that that same template that Herschel Gordon Lewis created. Whereas you watch a Coffin Joe movie, uh, if you watch At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul, or, Soul, or This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse, it, there's nothing you don't get anything like like there's nothing that came after this that looks exactly like this. And you can see the influence in individual pieces and moments in other films. But yeah, this is it's classic horror. It's extreme gore and sadism. But then it's also it's got the German expressionism and it has just in, in the way that it's filmed, it has probably more in common with like a French new wave movie than it does with a Herschel Gordon Lewis yeah. movie. And it's it's fucking wild. And even the the staging for for this film uh, at midnight, I'll take your soul is super interesting. And it it opens up a little bit in the sequel. This night, I'll I'll possess your corpse. But I mean, it looks like the movie was basically just shot in the director's house or someone's house, and then staged appropriately with the aforementioned weird fucking hands sticking out of the wall and bizarre decor. Um, but yeah, it's it's just common spaces that are dressed up to be just ever so fucking weird and off-putting and then the other thing i like too is any time that coffin joe is outside it's the most claustrophobic shit imaginable like almost every exterior shot in at midnight i'll take your soul is just like super fucking tight on coffin joe's head and he's just surrounded by bushes because they're trying to create the illusion of him like walking through the woods but clearly they've got like 10 feet of space in somebody's backyard and it's just it's amazing the way he takes all of these limitations and then turns it into something very unsettling you know you you have no sense of of space and and where you are in coffin joe's world at any given time whether you're in his fucking hand house, the weird bar that's like a cellar or <laughs> the various bushes he finds himself wandering in. It's it's all just deeply unsettling stuff. And it's great. Yeah, the, the outdoors effects is almost it's it's almost like the the um, Murnau swamp set for Sunrise, which also mm-hmm. became like the template for like. John Ford and Frank Brzezaki were very influenced by Murnau when he came over and they copied him for several films and they have the almost exact same that like they honestly it was probably the same set because it was all shot for Fox so it's probably the exact same swamp set and (laughs) it's this wonderfully like heightened version of a real location and yeah coffin joe almost uh, kind of creates the same kind of feeling of claustrophobia and heightened sense of an area from basically nothing from not having it not having a studio and then just being kind of like let's just shoot real tight on everything and create this just alienation of the space that way and it, it works it creates a similar kind of sense and it feels again like you know, I like looking at you're reminded of expressionism, you're reminded of Murnau. So there's clearly that that goal in there. It's it's really fascinating and it's it's kind of inspirational, really, in, in terms of like yeah. every every other filmmaker who complained about not having things, you know, I couldn't do it, I didn't have the money, I didn't have the resource. And it's like, what exactly did Coffin Joe have? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have shit. All he you know, he didn't have an actor. He wrote a fucking script, he decided he was gonna direct it, he had no formal training. And he played the lead himself. 
If you want to make a film, fuck school. Sell your house, make your wife live somewhere else, and make your fucking movie. Coffin Joe did it. You can too. I mean, be a weird little asshole. It's it's the way forward. Yeah. Grow your fingernails out. <laughs> like a little creep. <laughs> a little coke um, thumb. Yeah, get, you, get yourself a fucking coke thumb. So, by the time we jump from At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul to This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse, uh, this is a great sequel, too, because it's basically just, oh, Coffin Joe's back on his bullshit. <laughs> Same thing. Gotta find a woman. Gotta get I her mean, pregnant. And he's, he's grabbing them in mass now. He's, he's getting them, like, six at yeah, a time. It's, and this is after, find the perfect this is after uh, a ghost had, like, squeezed his eyes out of his skull. So you would think he might have some uh, revelatory belief in, in the, uh, the supernatural. But no. Now he's he's even no. further gone, you know. This time it's like no. This is this is the best thing about him, right? Because he's so steadfast in his like nihilist Nietzschean philosophy that even when he has when he confronts uh, supernatural shit directly to the point where it squeezes the eyes out of his skull, he's like, nah, it ain't real. <laughs> I, I think there's almost a, there there's almost a a justification for it that the coffin joe is such a profound materialist that the only thing that it's correct is living so if he survived the ghostly assault he's correct they weren't they weren't right. right they didn't stop him. yeah fair you know there's almost yep. this kind of sense that that that's it like as long as coffin joe is alive he is exonerated in his beliefs I, yeah two just had me wondering if he'd like in the intervening time and some somewhere encountered like some German expats in Brazil. I was like, Jesus, this movie is <laughs> He's going real Nazi yeah. at this point. It's true. Yeah. And he there goes is full also, Nazi. like, he, he disavows, you know, he meets a ghostly parade in the end of the first film. And then by, by the end of this one, there's like, God, prove to me you exist. And lightning strikes a tree and sets it on fire and drops the tree on him. And he's like, that doesn't prove anything. <laughs> and it's like, wow, this tough crowd. It's a real tough crowd. Again, like if Coffin Joe was real and and lived in modern times, he would do really well on the internet, you know. Oh Fucking man, guys, yeah. all the time. Prove this, like you know, prove to me that the world's not flat. It's like, well, yeah. Imagine if Ben Shapiro or why. Tim Pool had the like raw charisma of Coffin Joe; they'd be dangerous. Yeah, yeah. It's it's unfortunate that they're just tiny little fucking dweebs. Because well, even when we get into the third um, one, he's he's doing a, some debate me bro bullshit. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he really, he's just that guy. Um, but it's, it's, I, I really like this night, I'll possess your, your corpse because it's, um, like he goes full on mad scientist for this. He has a lab, he has a deformed hunchback assistant who appears out of nowhere. Let's, you know, just, just hangs out. He's kidnapping women en masse to do, to try and basically run his own weird dating reality TV show to find which one is the perfect yeah. woman for him. And one of his main criteria is that they're not scared of tarantulas. That's like a major mm -hmm. thing for Coffin Joe. There's uh, really no difference between this movie and an episode of The Bachelor, if you think about it. It's, it's pretty <laughs> much the same. It's a hell of a lot more entertaining. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fantastic and he looks better than ever right his fingernails are longer his oh, beard's yeah. trimmed up his unibrow is is more thick and luscious than it's ever been like he's he's fucking ready for it uh but the women aren't ready for him like even with his you know his big grab bag of ladies uh he does a classic coffin joe move and this is great for a sequel too because you know in the first movie he finds out his his wife who loves him despite the fact that he's coffin joe can't have kids 
And, you know, if you have a wife who loves you unconditionally, but she can't have children, what do you do? You kill her with a giant poisonous spider. And uh, in in the second movie, to test out these ladies to see if they're worthy of bearing his child, he he just invites about 300 giant spiders (laughs) into the room where they're all sleeping. And holy shit, these spiders, I mean, there's definitely some real spiders in this, but the effects are fucking awesome, man. Like compared to, I don't know, like Fulci's The Beyond when the little spider puppets come out. <laughs> well, I imagine in Brazil, it's probably a lot easier to find incredibly large oh. spiders. Uh, yeah, you, you probably just send kids I'll you, out. I'll get you fucking 100 spiders by noon, man. I got spiders everywhere. Come on. Yeah, it's yeah. easy to find them down there. <laughs> and this one's fun because this one also introduces like almost like the weakness of Coffin Joe almost or, or the, the ethics of Coffin Joe, which is essentially that he still absolutely he will rape, steal and murder to kind of achieve his goals. But Coffin Joe believes children are pure and innocent. Coffin Joe will protect. He dives in front of a motorcycle to protect a child because the children are still young and innocent and perfect. It's only when they grow yeah. up and become corrupted fools that he'll then smash their head in with a rock and then somehow frame <laughs> someone else for the most horrific murder. Can you imagine carrying that corpse around? Like, there's no way you could convince people that happened on site. Uh, yeah. it's, it's an incredible I, I sequence. I love how Coffin Joe loves children. Like, yeah, at one point he sees some dad, like, yelling at his kid and he just, like, runs over. He's like, you piece of shit, leave that kid alone. He's perfect and beautiful. And he's, he's amazing. Like, if Coffin Joe was around today, he'd be the guy like breaking into Coffin Pizza or Coffin, Coffin Pizza, pizza. Comet Pizza, <laughs> breaking into Comet Pizza with the AR-15, looking for the children that oh, Hillary yeah. Clinton is trafficking. That would be a he'd shit be ordering for sure. every wardrobe off Wayfair and checking every inch of it for for hidden children. <laughs> You know, he's he's great in this movie because he's just utterly demented. Like I I love mm-hmm. that. Like early on. He's like walking around and everyone in the town is basically like, oh, there's Coffin Joe. He's a weird criminal freak. Stay away from him. And he just launches into yeah. a diatribe about, you know, how like, you know, every aren't aren't we all guilty? Truly, like every one of us shares some kind of guilt. Only the children <laughs> are innocent. It's like, yeah, who among <laughs> us? And it's like, no, you are guilty of everything <laughs> that they say you are. Like, this is an insane speech to deliver. But that's that's yeah. our man. He's he's that's, just that's out here. his whole philosophy. He's just like, yeah, you you fucking rubes are guilty of doing hail marys and going to confessional, and I'm I'm guilty of choking some women to death uh you know it's what's the difference between the two of us that much should take a look in the mirror thing it's like you know because yeah it's like i think six women have disappeared and we all really suspect coffin jones like no no absolutely not how dare you meanwhile the corpses of five of them are in a swamp somewhere and the sixth one is is plotting with him to help him because he's just so goddamn charismatic even though it turns out she's not the one no no she loves one more a mortal sin in the world of Coffin Joe, he said. He refuses to uh, procreate with someone who loves. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. I, yeah, Coffin Joe is strong, like, equilibrium logic, actually, which I kind of enjoy in this context. You know, in the movie Equilibrium, which is all about how they got rid of emotions, and if you watch that movie, every single plot beat is basically everyone being very emotional. It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, Coffin Joe is pretty much the same thing. He's like, he's constantly driven to rages and revenge while talking about how he's completely devoid of emotion, which makes sense because people who are like that are invariably 
emotionally just deranged and taken with their own rages and predilections. So I think it's really funny. It's, it's, I mean, you're right. Like he really is, he's like an annoying right wing dude, but somehow through the magic of cinema, he's, he's become a pretty entertaining character. Yeah. He's (laughs) well, and the other thing I, I love about, this night I'll possess your corpses. It really is a perfect sequel because it takes everything that I liked about the first movie and then just ratchets everything up to 11. Um, but instead of being spooked by a spooky ghost procession on the day of the dead, cause he's like, uh, you know, you guys are a bunch of Catholic pussies. I don't care. Uh, I want to take this hot lady home. So I'm going to go outside when I'm not supposed to in this movie, uh, his rejection of God and religion it gets him physically dragged through the dirt into hell by the hands of, of like corpses. Mm-hmm. And this is incredible it's shit. It's astonishing. That, I mean, you got to remember these, these first two movies in the Coffin and Joe trilogy are both black and white. Uh, but when he gets dragged into hell, all of a sudden it's in like stunning psychedelic technicolor craziness. And it's just fucking nuts. It's just it's people in- screaming and all these quick cuts to all these people being tortured. And then he meets Satan and Satan is just him. <laughs> and it's, it's fucking wild. It's incredible. I mean, it, it, this to me is a convincing for me. I'm like, when, when I saw that scene I was like, oh shit, I'm going to buy that big arrow set. Like I've got, I've got to have a copy of this that I can drop out. It's just an incredible sequence. And it, yeah, it, it looks like, like a Fleischer Popeye cartoon. Like it's it's color palette, and it's, it reaffirms I think that I I'm pretty sure Coffin Joe watched some cocktail growing up. It's got that great kind of like living walls kind of element that that he has. But yeah, just a uh, body strapped down, screaming torture. Great kind of like Catholic imagery. You know these these are the images that fuel Catholics that have made them such a, a popular religion. Just people strapped to rocks having a terrible time. There's nothing, nothing more compelling. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. a real, and you know, and I mean, push it pointing forward as well. I think Fulci's The Beyond is a, you know, a, a kind of the, a more contemporary conception of the same thing on the same kind of scale of like achieving this incredible otherworldly effect with very little actual resources, just with a very creative framing. But it is an astonishing sequence, and if nothing else we've said about these films sounds that interesting to you, you will want to see. This night I'll possess your corpse just just for that. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is what separates this movie. Frankly, like I, I mean, there's a lot in this movie that's <laughs> fucking great. But if the first movie's kind of a a fun and interesting thing, uh, but this uh, this is something different. Like, yeah, right right as soon as we get into this hell sequence, you're like, oh no, this is. This is an important film. Like this is a, this guy's up to something. And yeah, now this it, it's difficult to compare the first two because I, I like them both a great deal. But uh, this is a step up. Like this is something if you're into horror at all, you should seek it out because it's it's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like you know you think about uh, another film we discussed somewhat fairly recently, Hercules in the Haunted World, oh, yeah. uh, Bava's film from '61. There's a pretty strong overlap visually, and so so Bava did this first, and there's entirely possible Marines had seen that film, 
Um, I could certainly see that influence in the strong primary colors and throughout it. But it's pretty remarkable to think that Bava, of course, came up through a thriving studio system and was obviously yeah. was an incredible talent himself, but came up with all this support and, and know-how and technical expertise and training. And Marines did not. He's just, he's mm -hmm. winging it effectively, you know, kind of like taking what he can get and, and putting it together. And it's absolutely just remarkable filmmaking. It is such a wonderful thing. Um, yeah, like, again, inspirational. Just like this guy is shutting up naysayers left and right with this yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really oh, special stuff. I mean, yeah, you can... To say that something echoes Bava is is uh, the highest compliment visually, considering <laughs> the vast gulf in resources between the two films. And, you know, you could look at, again, if we look at those Hercules films, you could look at things that, uh, you know, followed that Bava film uh, from Italian filmmakers who are well-trained and still working within this sort of grand studios of Rome. And they don't look half as good as this, you know, Bava no. certainly had that eye, but to, to have that eye sort of transplanted into this resourceless uh, film and uh, it, it is evocative of, of some of his best work. And it's just, it's pretty incredible to see here. It has that kind yeah. of like grit and like, like smudge to it that I think Fulci also kind of understood that Fulci was a, a brilliant craftsman, but he also understood that, like, for horror particularly, if you want to create something really gnarly, you've kind of got to, like, move, you know, it, it's the little touches that move it into this kind of just nastier terrain, more evocative terrain. It's, you know, and, and this is what his, what, what Coffin Joe's hell is full of. It's just got these really kind of, uh, you know, like, unclear lines of where things are and where people are positioned and how any of this interacts with each other and what's going on. And it's 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 really just a, you know, whether by accident or design, by the necessities of working probably quite quickly with very little resources, it just, it's just one of those magical things. It's just kind of like, this is, I mean, honestly, this is what movie making is about. This is what every filmmaker would give their right arm to achieve is just this kind of transcendent sequence that that kind of uh, exceeds any kind of idea of you know coming from a place or a time that's just like it's just in blaze like i'm this is just going to be in my memory forever i'm never going to forget this mm -hmm. You know, that that's what everyone's chasing. And his second second coffin Joe movie, he's just a, here we go. Let's let's do it. <laughs> yeah, that's it's pretty incredible. And I, I think it's kind of interesting, too, that, you know, he, he follows these two movies up with uh, something not entirely different, but totally a, a swerve into a different direction. So, uh 1968 we've got the strange world of coffin joe which is a, a three film horror anthology that's sort of featuring coffin joe a, a little bit yes, um, yeah he's, he's kind of like the crypt keeper character but they don't really use him a ton for uh connective tissue if you will and it's mostly just uh jose mojica marines uh, walking around in the, the worst wig I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, but also, it's an opportunity for him to just find new ways to push himself in terms of, of form and, 
and what he can show people on the screen. Because around the time that the Strange Rule of Coffin Joe comes out, uh, this is where the Brazilian government really starts to crack down on the films that he's making and and start censoring and, and banning his work uh, across the board. So, uh, yeah, it's it's just it's kind of an odd swerve. Yeah, it's it, this one is it's interesting. I I think it it maybe lacks the highs of the other two to some degree, but it it does show him exploring film form, particularly particularly with the second the second installment, which is basically a silent film. It's a completely without dialogue. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a fun work. Uh, you know, I think the first section is probably the weakest, and it's also I think the shortest. It's a you know with a doll maker who has. His dolls have strangely human eyes, and you wonder where those might come from. And guess, guess where they come from? They come from people. Uh, and you know, but it still plays with this kind of like, um, with with the women in this case are actually the the predators. The 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 men are lured to the doll maker's home by his four beautiful daughters. It kind of turns tables a little bit on on the Coffin Joe enterprise, where the women are. Sometimes do work in collusion with Coffin Joe, but are generally mm-hmm. objects of predation. So, you know, it's got that element to it. The second sequence is really, I think, quite interesting. A basic story off session and a story about a hunchback balloon seller who is obsessed with a model who is inexplicably murdered on her wedding day by another woman, I guess a jealous ex-lover of the groom or something I don't, I don't think it's particularly clear just pulls a knife on the woman and stabs her on the steps of the church and uh it's, it happens yeah and it's it's <laughs> an interesting one because because the, the the obsessed balloon seller goes to visit her in the crypt and essentially we end with necrophilia and then like a redressing of the corpse and this almost ceremonious kind of element all done without dialogue this whole sequence this whole story is is just told through images i think this is very much uh, Marines checking himself as a, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker. I think it's really funny if the government are cracking down, you'll be like, okay, less gory violence, let's just do the necrophilia, because everyone's, everyone's <laughs> chill with that. But um, yeah, it, it, it's just a kind of, an imp- there's still things that impress here, and I would be very interested to see this again with, uh, with better subtitles and a nicer image, because this one definitely is looking a little rough around the edges. And then the last mm-hmm. sequence, which is the one where Coffin Joe Marines himself reemerges. He he appears at the start of the film as actual Coffin Joe, delivering just a spooky intro, like, oh, beware, you're about to enter a scary film. And then he appears in the last film, but not as Coffin Joe, instead as Professor Oaxiacodez, who, for, for the, the attentive will notice if you spell that backwards, it's uh, Zedo Kausau uh, or whatever, which, which is Coffin Joe backwards. You literally just, <laughs> just swap the letters around and he's got like a weird Svengali wig on and it's, it's just Coffin Joe. And it's, yeah. uh, I, the last section is just really funny because, again, it's full of sadistic violence, but it's about uh, kind of a Coffin Joe guy who's got theories about how, you know, natural order and instinct will always triumph over everything else and then he just tortures some people until they do terrible things yeah. which doesn't mm-hmm. actually prove anything um, or but, does it yeah that's or does it indeed <laughs> or does it well i just love that whole the, the, the setup of this is just like patently ridiculous where it, he's like all right now i'm gonna sit you down and you're gonna watch a a cabaret show i'm like oh what's he gonna like uh appeal to the you know he's, he's gonna seduce them with some some strange imagery and bring out their savage side it's like no it, it's just more grand all stuff and but the even the like 
the realization of that Grand Guinal stuff is it, it plays with this ridiculous uh, that that I love. Like there's this woman is being tortured, and then one of the one of the depraved maniacs who have, have fallen to the ways of the professor for some reason brings out like a foot long sub <laughs> just like waves it in her face and i'm like what what is this meant to it's so it's so cruel because the first guy tries to like grope her and she smacks him yeah. and then the next guy offers her a foot long and she smacks him too and it's like this seems like yeah. a better offer i know don't smack a man don't who's handing you a hoagie come on like that's just fucking cruel um <laughs> Yeah, it's, I don't know. This this has got just some of the most bizarre shit compared to the first two <laughs> movies that feels a little bit out of place. But again, he's just he's just kind of cutting loose. I do feel that it's it's interesting that in Brazil it's it was easier at this time to get away with uh, sex as opposed to to violence. So um, I think that element is ratcheted up a little bit in this movie. Um, but the other thing that's weird, too, is I guess for the longest time, if you wanted to be financially successful in Brazil, you basically had to make porn. Uh, and even Old Coffin Joe was not beyond that. There's a there's a Jose Mojica Marin movie from 1985 called uh, 24 Hours of Explicit Sex. I'll let you guys guess what that one's about. Uh, is it, is but, it 24 hours long? Uh, no, unfortunately, no. It's not like the out one of pornos. Uh, but it's <laughs> there's like three people in the world that are laughing at that joke and no one else uh, two of them are on this podcast but anyways uh, <laughs> so he, he made he made some pornos that was one of them and it's his most financially successful movie <laughs> like way more than any of the Coffin Joe stuff but it also features uh, a woman who actually has sex with a, a fucking like uh, uh, what's, what's the Rin Tin Tin dog a German Shepherd Fuck's a German Shepherd. So oh, cool. Uh, Great yeah. stuff. Th there's there's a couple lessons to be learned from this director. One, sell your house, make a movie. It doesn't matter if you don't know how to do it, just do it. Two, if you don't make any money, maybe convince someone to have sex with a dog. Ooh, I don't he's know. also got That's, a, a follow-up called 48 Hours of Hallucinatory Sex. I think uh I think we okay. know what's going on next November's calendar. Is it <laughs> God? <laughs> I've seen enough bestiality. For one month, thank you. Uh, that's I, I wonder. It, is the there's no German Shepherd listed on IMDb? I hope, but uh, for the second one. Well, you know, IMDb doesn't uh, do very well at chronicling uh, pornography, so I'm, I'm guessing the credits are not yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, it does a real shit job. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, anyways, I I would say this one, the Strange World of Coffin Joe. It's it's one of those, and, and there's a few of them out there that. Are, are very hard to find serviceable copies of even even his most popular films are not in the best of shape let's say and i also kind of wonder if if some of his pre-coffin joe work like there's a, a film that he almost finished but didn't because the uh, the lead actress died during the last week of filming uh, she like drowned in a bathtub so i don't know if that footage exists anywhere uh, but then he also he made a western before he made the first Coffin Joe movie. And I wonder if, if that exists in any form on physical media. Probably not. But uh, yeah, this, this movie looks like somebody threw it into a fucking sausage grinder. So I'm excited to see a restored version of it. And we, we were talking before we started recording and 
this is one of those instances where you ever get subtitles for a film and you think to yourself, I, I'm pretty sure they just took the Portuguese dialogue, plugged it into Google, Google Translate, crossed their fingers and hoped for the best. There's a lot of real stilted, bizarre shit in here that doesn't feel right. Yeah, it's, it's possible that the professor actually is making succinct arguments uh, in the third <laughs> chapter, but they certainly yeah, don't to come say. across based on, well, on what we're... I love this, there's a, there's at a least they nailed the subtitles in the second one, you know, because it's true. silent. So. I, really, I really enjoy when the professor opens his performance, because essentially he's somehow this weird Svengali lunatic is on, on a TV show called Men Who Make the News. Somehow this man is making news in Brazil, <laughs> like he's a major figure. And and another guy's like uh, on the thing. It's like everything you're saying is complete bullshit. It's stupid, and uh, which he's correct. And uh, so so the the professor's like, come to my home with your wife, and I'll prove to you through science. And he brings him home, and he's basically just like pulls back a curtain and shows him a bunch of like humans doing terrible things. And it's great because one of the first things is like two people just like having sex on a table, and it looks like one of them. I couldn't tell with the image if he was cutting her or I think it looked like he was just brushing blood on her while they were having sex, which seemed, you know, just like okay, a bit odd, but whatever. But but it, the subtitles proclaim like they don't have a word for what this is. <laughs> and it's like it's two people having sex on a table. I think we've a, like a lot of words for people doing stuff like that effectively, but uh Cool. That, and that's pretty much the whole the whole last section. It's just a series of like grotesque things. I mean, and some of it's interesting. I mean, there's a guy literally they do like real skin piercing. There's a dude who's just getting needles driven through various flabby parts of his skin, which if you know, is not exactly a easiest thing to look at depending if you if you're sensitive to such topics i is not so much the putting the needles in for me so much as when he has to then like flip himself over and like scurry off screen while someone pretends to whip him like if one of those needles gets caught on something while you're doing that that looks like it could be very bad time but who am i these are professionals working so you know and so it's so weird to have that next to the second section which i mean the second section yes it ends with like a series of uh, a sequence of like necrophilia uh offset against intercut with like religious iconography like it's it's a scene custom pretty tame otherwise though yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> a scene absolutely designed from the ground up to piss off every religious person in a predominantly catholic nation but it's really interesting because the framework of a balloon seller kind of looking at, you know, kind of an object of affection that's beyond him has, I think, a strong influence. I got a very sense, you know, of Chaplin's City Lights or something like that. And also that it's a silent film, but not a real silent film in the same way that City Lights was a silent film made in the sound era. Um, and I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I think Chaplin sells balloons in that movie potentially at some point. I think that's a thing. Or he has a balloon at some point. But anyway, there felt like there was a clear inference to to marines you know invoking a chaplain-esque setting to this and um, before he goes off on his much more grisly uh specific inferences so yeah I, I think it's an interesting film certainly in terms of marine's development as a filmmaker but also kind of like yeah his 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 own influences in history which i i think are are interesting to look at when you see basically a guy coming out of nothing a genuine self-made kind of almost outsider art on the international scene. I think Brazilian cinema at this point was was not widely distributed. I mean, Brazilian cinema still isn't particularly widely distributed. I would say mm -hmm. right now, Argentinian cinema is kind of having a moment. And that means that like three movies from Argentina show up at art house cinemas in America every year. You know, that's like a big thing. 
uh, you know, City of God was like the big breakthrough and there were maybe two other movies successfully piggybacked off that and then just kind of disappeared again. And uh, if you know a lot about Brazilian cinema beyond that, that means you're like a real hardcore cinephile or a Brazilian. One of the one of those two options. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, well, I, I hate to cut us off here, but we're we're getting close to time, so we should probably well, wrap Steve, things up. Uh, an important uh, update before, as as we wrap up uh, about forty eight uh, hours of hallucinatory sex. Uh, it seems uh-huh. it seems to be like a human centipede part two sort of deal, where a, a woman has seen the original film and and now seeks to recreate it, except uh, twice as big. Um, and and the, the, okay. the end of the description, as far as your, your questions uh, as to the uh, bestiality portion of, of the, the film, uh, it, it seems like it might not be there, but, but what we do have is, uh, it says, ultimately she persuades a man to dress in an ox costume and penetrate her vaginally while she is naked inside a wooden cow. So I, I think that uh, oh. it sounds, you know, intriguing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a new approach, right? You know, it's, it, it's maybe you, you gotta, you gotta make your bestiality a little more stagey to make it more palatable. Yeah. I'm not sure. I got one on the oh, sensors. That's great. That way, well, you know? hey, something taboo four never had anything like that enough. Just wait. I know. I'll stick I the fucking we, game up taboo. You're just, this is a tease for what we're going to get next November. Ah. This is, this is great. Yeah, we need a, can we just have an episode we call Coffin Joe D'Amato, where we just watch Joe D'Amato and Jose Moico Marin pornos? Well, that, that might be two episodes, Steve. <laughs> Each of That's these men deserve true. their own fucking spotlight. I just, I like a good portmanteau, yeah. what can I say? All right, well, uh, Myros, other than 48 hours of a hallucinatory sex involving an ox costume, what are you putting over I've somehow week? managed to not watch anything despite having this week off, but, uh, you know, one of the last Great. things we watched for class is, is a, a terrible movie that I had not seen in uh, many years, uh, which is Crash, Best Picture winner. And, you know, I... You had to watch that for did. class? Like as a thing? We did. In, what, uh, in what, film was the, what was the lesson you're supposed yeah, to take no, from that? No, no, trust me. I, I was initially, because I love this prof and I thought he was losing his mind or something. No, no, the answer is he he picked it because he, he hates it. And uh, we just spent a week <laughs> making fun of it. And I got to say, uh, go back to that movie with that mindset. Uh, it's kind of a fucking blast to, to sit through. Uh Revisiting Crash uh, with the complete knowledge that it is a uh, pile of dog shit, uh, it will it will bring you to tears with with laughter. I gotta tell you, the movie is a fucking tremendous joke, and uh, and I recommend it uh, for viewing in in completely the opposite of its intended uh, purpose because it is a, an utter failure and a ridiculous, uh, overblown piece of uh, faux important cinema that is. Uh, it's it's surprisingly uh, entertaining and hilarious when when viewed uh, for what it is, which is a, a a piece of shit. Yeah, what a profoundly uh, influential movie, though. I'm paving the way for other piles of shit like Green Book. You know, it's yeah, uh, no. that's I'm gonna have to revisit mm-hmm. that one. That's <laughs> Jack. What are you putting over this week? So I've been I've been trying to do a little bit of 2023 catch up. So picking all the big titles of the year. Uh, so obviously I watched Hideaki Anno's Shin Kamen Rider, 
um, which it's on Amazon Prime streaming currently, but it's under the title Shin Masked Rider, just to make things awkward. They tr- they half translated mm. the title. Like, if you're going to do that, just call it New Masked Rider. Why would you half translate it? But anyway, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, basically, I mean, if, if you know what it's uh, the the style of things of like a masked martial arts superhero fighting increasingly ridiculous uh, enemies, it's full of like wonderful, wonderfully like hokey, strange, elaborate monsters and and bad guys fighting each other while debating philosophy, as you'd expect of a Hideaki Anno film. Um, and a great focus on kind of uh, happiness and existential quandaries, um, also typical of Anno's work. But what I really love about it is that, like, they don't, despite having all these, you know, superhuman creatures and things in it, they don't really change the, the backdrop at all. So it's a movie where a man will have a massive martial arts fight with a bunch of masked enemies and pummel their heads into gory mush. Somehow this movie's like PG-13, but like just gouts of blood wherever anyone hits someone. Um, and then they'll just all pile into like a mid-sized Honda sedan and go for a drive. It's it's this really strange disconnect between things. Um, but yeah, Shin Kamen Rider, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I have to say Shin Godzilla, I, I don't think we can ever recapture that high because Godzilla to me is just such an incredibly, you know, incredible tapestry that you can work with. There's so much in there. But this is a lot of fun, and Anno teases out quite a lot of, of interesting details within it. So, yeah, def- definitely worth checking out. And I have no expertise with the series, with all the common Rider stuff that's been going on for decades in Japan. I don't know anything about it. I still had a great time. You, you definitely don't need to... I'm sure there'd be many things you'd recognize if you did, but you, you just wander in blind. It's great fun. Nice. Well, I'm going to put over... I guess two things. Uh, one is I'm always curious, like what is the ultimate holiday family gathering movie? Well, I thought we established where no one's actually taboo. well taboo, yeah, <laughs> ta- taboo four specifically, where no one is actually watching the movie. It's just like it's ambiently on. Someone turned it on, and you know your your uncle is off snoozing in a recliner. People are are off doing other things, and it's just on. And I think I figured it out. It's the ultimate uncle falling asleep in a lazy boy chair after Thanksgiving dinner movie. And it is uh, Day and Night, a Tom Cruise movie from like 2010, 2011, 2012. I don't fucking know. Uh, Which is just like, what if one of the Mission Impossible movies was completely unremarkable in every single way, shape, and form imaginable. And not in like an offensive, bad, like annoying way. It just sort of washes over you. It's it's an amazing it's like thing. Cameron Diaz thing. Uh, so yeah, it's like a Mr. and Mrs. Smith not doing sort of anything. thing. I don't know. It, uh, right. That's pretty much it. That's that's it. It's Mission Impossible and Cameron Diaz wants to yeah, fuck Tom Cruise. Sure. That's the movie. That's it. Uh obviously not not as good as a Mission Impossible movie, but I was just, I was struck by how beautifully mediocre it is. It's, it's wonderfully uninteresting. So there's something for you. Uh, but no, the, the one, the one really good thing that I watched this week was a movie called Siege. And that is, uh, it's a Canadian movie from the eighties. It's basically, uh, what if Assault on Precinct 13 was made for a fifth of the budget and was very, very, very Canadian. And it's great. It's fantastic. 
Uh, there's a, a Blu-ray out from Severin, I think, that you can pick up for a reasonable price. And uh, yeah, highly, highly recommend. I think it's streaming on Tubi maybe right now. So you can watch it on Tubi too. So there you go. <clears throat> Siege, watch that. Night and day, maybe don't watch that, but turn it on and see if anybody no- notices or if it's just like a, like a fan just sort of blowing in the background. Other than that, if you enjoyed the podcast today, do us a favor. Check out the description and click the link and that'll take you to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Optimism Vaccine. And for any amount of money at all, I will send you a movie in the mail, assuming you live in the continental United States, and uh, it'll be from my personal collection. It could be a DVD, a Blu-ray, it could be fucking the Coffin Joe movie. You don't know. You don't know shit. But you're going to get something in the mail, I can tell you that much. You also get access to our whole back catalog of uh, old written content as well as special patron-only podcast episodes. Very cool. Now, if you want to be a true Optimism Vaccine fan and really support us, God, I'm starting to lose the voice. It was was fine the whole episode. Now it's starting to fucking bottom out here. Uh, Anyways, $5 and above, you get some bonus perks, including having your name read out on the air, and uh, being able to vote in patron polls. So, Myros, who are our five and above yeah, patrons David, right now? David, Ryan, Dustin, and Paul. <clears throat> Beautiful. Every single one of them, absolute saints. And then, of course, if you want to donate $25 to Optimism Vaccine, uh, whether that's one time or reoccurring, then not only do you get everything we've already listed, but you get to choose an entire episode, anything you want, and we will do it. And uh, those have been pretty good so far. I think our patrons have been good to us. It turned out to be some, some pretty fun episodes. So you could be the next patron to do the $25 tier. It could happen at any point. Uh, we, we did have someone pay us $25 to do the movie where uh, Alec Baldwin like actually shot someone on set. But I, I don't think that's ever getting released. So uh, what, I don't know what we're going to do about that. But anyways... <laughs> Probably just keep the money. Um, I think yeah, I, they, so, they've been working hard. Uh, I feel they didn't they go back to production. Like I think I think it might show up. It's just a question of show who's who's gonna watch it for not twenty five dollars. Like who's gonna pay? Because yeah. we'll we're probably gonna steal that. Oh, we're gonna hundred percent steal. I'm not giving them money for right. that. I'm gonna steal the <laughs> shit out of it. It would feel wrong, and and that's what like it who is renting wrong, yeah. that movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess people who don't read the news, if you think about it, like if you're just like, oh, generic Alec Baldwin Western, uh, and then it's been like three years out of the news cycle, I, I guess you might hit that, that buy now or rental button on your Amazon account. I don't fucking know. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're going to steal that for sure. Anyways, what are we going to pair that uh, with? Yeah, if, if Twilight you, Zone? I, the Crow? The crow? I, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's a good triple feature right there. That's good. The, the morally dubious cast. What a, what a wonderful episode that'll be. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, if you enjoyed the podcast today, uh, you can, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, anything like that, you can email us, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us, blue sky at us, X, X us, whatever. If you're on social media, look for us. We're, just, we're at Optimism Vaccine. You can find us. Nobody else has that fucking name. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you. We'll smack that like button. We'll say hi. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. So we will be back next week. More Coffin Joe. And that's it.